Hey guys, welcome to the Page Turners Podcast. If you like podcasts and you like books and you like audio books particularly, you've come to the right place. My name is Elgin Bailey here at the Page Turners Podcast. We take books and we read through them page by page, line by line, and offering commentary along the way. Typically, we happen to pick books that are directly related to the black experience. So here at the Page Turners Podcast, our motto is liberation through pages. So stick around and listen to this podcast as we navigate through season five, where we are discussing the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex. Stick around. As always, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Search Podcast. It is your boy, Elgin Bailey. So glad that you are here with me this evening for another episode as we continue season five, the nonprofit industrial complex. Ooh, boy, the past couple episodes, man, it was some meaty, phenomenal information, a lot of stuff to unpack and to dig in. As always, I'm diving right in and giving you 30 good minutes of information and discussion. Please, as always, like, subscribe, share, comment, all of those things. Uh, I'm going to dig right in. We are in the introduction of this particular text. We're still in the intro. All right. And I read. Leading the rights assault on liberal foundations was Congressman Wright Patman of Texas, who conducted a study of foundations beginning in 1962. In reports he sent to the House of Representatives, Patman contended that economic power was consolidating in the hands of foundations. Foundations were being used to escape state taxes, compensate relatives, and pay annuities to themselves. The Internal Revenue Service lacked proper oversight over foundations. Foundations were controlling businesses to give them a competitive advantage over small businesses, and foundations were spending too much of their money overseas. I heard a fascinating stat, too, if you have been paying attention to everything that's taking place in the world, particularly what's been taking place with... um, Haiti and our brothers and sisters attempting to get into the country but that's not the point of what I'm discussing here one of um, a a Haitian who was well researched uh, within the media uh, Pascal Robert uh, he stated something that I wanted to dig in deeper to and investigate, but this particular part about nonprofits being overseas tied into the thought process, right? He stated that in Haiti, <laughs> over, what did he say? Over 60% of 
organizations over there are nonprofits. And I just found that so fascinating. And as we get deeper into this text, we'll see how those particular things tie into and play a role into nonprofits. Right? Okay. And I read. The Internal Revenue Services lacked proper oversight over foundations. Foundations were controlling businesses to give themselves a competitive advantage over small businesses, and foundations were spending too much of their money overseas. Remember that. In the early 1960s, foundations were growing at a rate of... Listen to this. The 1960s, foundations were growing at a rate of 1,200... Per year, and financial magazines routinely promoted foundations as tax shelters tools. In response, Congress passed the Tax Reform Act of 1969, which reversed the previous state policy of only minimally regulating foundations. This act imposed a 4% excise tax on foundations' net investment income, but restrictions on the ability of foundations to engage in business operations, thus curtailing the abilities of corporations to operate tax-free, ostensibly foundations, and required foundations to annually spend at least 6% of net investment income, reduced to 5% in 1988, to prevent them from growing without serving their ostensible charitable purposes. Additionally, the Act required foundations to provide more comprehensive information disclosures on their operations and annual reports to be filed with the IRS and made available to citizens at foundation offices. Notwithstanding its attack on foundations, the right also developed its own foundations. As Michael Schumann of the Institute of Policy Studies notes, while right-wing foundations actually give away less money than liberal foundations, the former use their funds more effectively. Progressive funders generally give money to specific issue-oriented campaigns. That's very important. Pay attention to that. Don't don't lose sight of that right there, right? Because that's crucial. And I'm sliding the wrong way. That's crucial to understand. Progressive funders genuinely give money to specific issue-oriented campaigns, okay? Whereas right-wing foundations see the need to fund the intellectual projects that enable the right to develop comprehensive framework for presenting its issues to the public. These think tanks... Research projects, journals, etc. may not have an immediate short-term impact, but in the long run, they altered public consciousness. The kind of investment by the right in public policy has paid off handsomely. Its long-term support of conservative public scholars enables them to develop and promote numerous new ideas. With ample funding, they have successfully pounded their message into the heads of millions, sowing confusion, apathy, and opposition to public regulation of private corporations. 
Right-wing foundations pour millions of dollars into funding think tanks such as the Heritage Foundation to help craft an ideological package that has a fundamentally reshaped the consciousness of of the public. Heritage Foundation President Edward Faulkner talks about the foresight of right-wing funders such as Richard Scaife who saw the importance of political education. Jeez. Right-wing victories, he notes, started more than 20 years ago when Dick Scaife had the vision to see the need for conservative intellectual movement in America. These organizations built the intellectual case that was necessary before political leaders like Newt Gingrich could translate their ideas into practical political alternatives. The rise of foundation support accompanied the rise of groups that organizes formal 501c3 nonprofit organizations because foundations could make tax-deductible donations to nonprofits, right? Particularly after the federal government began to regulate foundations giving more strictly in 1969. According to the IRS, nonprofits are religious, charitable, scientific or educational organizations whose receipts are tax exempt and whose contributions are tax deductible to the donors. It's fascinating when you think of all of the celebrities who have always started a foundation of some sort, right? Everybody and their mama has a foundation and they're always giving away book bags and shit. Like, <laughs> book bags. <laughs> Always. Anyway, uh, and I read, this tax exempt status was created by Congress as part of the Revenue Act of 1913, passed after ratification of the 16th Amendment, which instituted the income tax. Generally, organizations must secure 501c3 status to receive foundation grants. Yeah, you got to be a 501c3. You got to get your LLC and all that type shit in order to get your grant. So when you look at issues that are plaguing predominantly working class, low uh, economic status, black and brown communities, you see one of the things that when the issue pops up and there's a problem uh, of some sort or some issue, uh, instead of rallying around and, and banding together with c- collective resources, right, what the first thing is... You know, ah, we got to get grants. We got to get, you know, we got to get funding. And, and of course, uh, I'm not in any way, shape or form saying that funding is not important. Like you, you got to have money. But as we'll see, as we dig further in this book, having those things complicate and make organizing so incredibly difficult and the intent behind it, right? The intent behind having 501c3s and nonprofits was to de-radicalize communities that should be outraged. And we'll see that when we get to uh, Brother Dylan Rodriguez's uh, his essay, which I believe is the first essay in this text. Anyway, and I read... Generally, organizations must secure 501c3 statuses to receive foundation grants, and they are prohibited from direct involvement in political advocacy. (laughs) Did you hear that? (laughs) Excuse me. They are prohibited 
from direct involvement in political advocacy, family. But that's not always the case, is it? Okay. And we'll talk more about that, too. (laughs) And I read... In 1953, the IRS estimated that about 50,000 organizations had received charity status. Watch how these numbers just explode like, boom, these numbers are going to explode like young LeBron going to the hole, right? Remember how young LeBron used to go to the hole and dunk with such like literally just such aggression and it watch how these numbers explode you ready okay remember 1953 the irs estimated that there was 50,000 organizations 1978 a little bit more than 20 years later that number had risen nearly six fold today Charities number more than 730,000. And this book is at least maybe 10 years old. Um, Think about that. Think about that. And it's actually more than, than 10 years old. Look at this as I read more. As of 1988, there was 734,501 C3 organizations in the United States alone. Today, foundations have assets of $500 billion and give around $33 billion annually. And there are 837,000 nonprofits, excluding religious organizations. I'm going to read that again because I want you to be able to to get that. Uh, By 1978, the number had risen nearly sixfold. Today, charities number more than 730,000, according to the latest IRS count. As of 1998, there were 734,501 C3s. Today, foundations have assets of 500 billion and give around 33 billion annually. And there are 837,000 nonprofits, excluding religious organizations. And religious organizations would take that well over a million nonprofits. During the late 1960s, radical movements for social change were transforming the shape of the United States while third world liberation movements were challenging Western imperialism. Foundations began to take a role in shaping this organizing so that special protests would not challenge the capitalist status quo. Robert L. Allen, as early as 1969 family, warned of the co-optation of the black power movement by foundations. In his germinal work, Black Awakening, Capitalist America, reprinted in part in this anthology, 
Allen documents how the Ford Foundation's support of certain black civil rights and black power organizations such as CORE, Congress of Racial Equity, actually helped shift the movement's emphasis through the recruitment of key movement leaders from the liberation to black capitalism. And, you know, we talked about black capitalism so much in season four last season when we dealt with the myth and propaganda of black buying power. If you haven't checked that out, man, you should go ahead and check it out. But it's key. Similarly, Madonna Thunderhawk describes how the offer of well-paying jobs in the nonprofit sector seduced many Native activists into diverting their energy from organizing to social service delivery and program development. As noted in foundations and public policy, large private foundations tended to fund racial justice organizations that focused on policy and legal reform, a strategy that effectively redirected activist efforts from radical change to social reform. It also helped to professionalize these movements, since only those with advanced degrees can do this kind of work, thus minimizing the importance of mass-based grassroots organizing. And we still see that very same thing today. Part of the issue that we see when it comes to nonprofits and 501c3s and LLCs and all those things is that they minimize, derail, distract, and in many instances destroy mass-based grassroots organizing. And I read, Nielsen in his 1972 study of the big foundations at the time noted that funding patterns indicated that philanthropic interests in the black derives from long tradition of humanitarian concern for his plight rather than from an ideological comment to the principle of racial equality, observing that the majority of foundations funding racial interest in issues went to higher education. Okay, Nelson notes, reminiscent of the ideas of Booker T. Washington, it is commonly believed that the most fruitful way to solve the problems of the blacks is to open educational opportunities to them. By climbing the rungs of the educational occupational ladder, they will eventually achieve full economic, political, and social equality within the system, right? Moreover, these educational opportunities have been opened. The primary responsibility for this advancement rests upon the black man on his own ambition and determination and effort. (laughs) Wow. So essentially, foundations provide a cover for white supremacy. That's rough. That's rough. Reminiscent of Rockefeller's strategy, people of color deserve individual relief, but people of organized to end white supremacy become menace to society. Another strategy developed to sublime revolutionary movements into reformist ones was leadership training, both domestically and internationally, whereby potential organizers were recruited 
to develop the skills to become policymakers and bureaucrats instead of organizers. As the essay on NGOization of the Palestinian liberation movement in this volume shows, this strategy of leadership development is still being used to transform liberation struggles, as Howard Dresden, secretary of the Ford Foundation, stated in 1969. Peep this, peep this. American society is being strained at one extreme by those who would destroy what they oppose or do not understand, and at the other by forces that will repress variety and punish dissent. We are in great need of more, not fewer, instruments for necessary social change under law for ready informed response to deep seated problems without chaos. Right? For accommodation of a variety of views without deafening anarchy, foundations have served as such an instrument. Okay, okay, okay. Meanwhile, Robert Arno's edited volume, Philanthropy and Cultural Imperialism, charged that foundations have a corrosive influence on a democratic society. They represent relatively unrelegated and unaccountable concentrations of power and wealth, which by talent promote causes and in effect establish an agenda of what merits society's attention. They serve as cooling out agencies, delaying and preventing more radical and structural change. They help maintain an economic and political order international in scope, which benefits the ruling class interests of philanthropists. Ooh, where's my pen? Ooh, I got to write that down. Okay. You should write this down too. <laughs> Robert Arnold. Philanthropy. Man. And cultural imperialism? That right there was some fire. Let me let me let me read that joint again, man, because I <laughs> listen, I had to put my hoodie up for that joint right there. Okay. And then I read Robert Arnov's edited volume philanthropy and culture imperialism charge that foundations have a corrosive influence on a democratic society. They represent relatively unrelegated, unaccountable concentrations of power and wealth, which by talent promote causes and in effect establish an agenda of what merits society attention. They serve as cooling off agencies, delaying and preventing more radical structural change. They help maintain an economic and political order, international in scope, which benefits the ruling class interests of philanthropists. That's some heat. And I read. As the essays in this volume will demonstrate, these critiques of foundations and nonprofits still ring true today. What is the nonprofit industrial complex? 
Dylan Rodriguez defines a nonprofit industrial complex as a set of symbolic, sorry, as a set of symbiotic relationships that link political and financial technologies of state and only class control with surveillance over public political ideology, including and especially emergent progressive and leftist social movements. He and Ruth Wilson Gilmore argue that the nonprofit industrial complex is the natural culinary to the prison industrial complex. While the PIC overtly rep- represses dissent, the MPIC manages the- and controls dissent by incorporating it into the state apparatus, functioning as shadow state. <sighs> constituted by a network of institutions that do much of what government agencies are supposed to do with the tax money in the areas of education and social services, the NPIC functions as an alibi that allows government to make war, expand punishment, and proliferate market economies under the veil of partnership with between the public and private sectors. Christy Christina E. Ahn looks more closely at the role of foundations in particular. She argues that foundations are theoretically a correlation, a correction, sorry. She argues that foundations are theoretically a correction for the ills of capitalism. Wowzer. However, If we look at where the actual funding goes, including who governs these institutions, we can see that most of the country's charity within individual, corporate, or foundation is not directed towards programs, services, and institutions that benefit the poor or disenfranchised, and certainly not toward effecting social change. When wealthy people create foundations, they exempt from paying taxes on their wealth. Thus, foundations essentially rob the public of monies that should be owed to them and give back very little of what is taken in lost taxes. In addition, their funds are derived from profits resulting from the exploitation of labor. That is, corporations become rich by exploiting their workers. Corporate profits are then put into foundations in order to provide relief to workers that are the result of corporate practices in the first place. Rather than thinking of foundations as a source of income for which we should be grateful, Ahn suggests we reimagine them as a target for accountability, just as we might to organize to hold corporations or the state accountable to the public good. Jeez. She just spit some fire right there, right? Did you hear that part? She argues that foundations are theoretically a correction for the ills of capitalism. Jeez. This next section right here. And family, we are just in the introduction. This is just an introduction, man. We we haven't even dug into the meat of the essays yet. This is just an introduction, right? And I read, how the nonprofit industrial complex impacts movements really important. 
It is easy to critique the larger foundations, but what about smaller foundations without large endowments? Are large foundations the only problem? The question is addressed by Tiffany King and Iwa Asinade's work. While Ahn discusses strategies for holding foundations accountable, King and Asinade contend that the effort to reform foundation basically serves to protect elitism within social justice movements. They further argue that even self-described alternatives to foundations funding, such as individual giving through major donors, are still based on the same logic that wealthy people should be the donors and thus inevitably right the controllers of social justice struggles ultimately even these funding strategies disadvantage people of color organizations which do not have the same access to wealthy donors as do white dominated organizations thus regardless of the intentions of particular foundations the framework of funding in which organizations expect to be funded by benefactors rather than their constituents negatively impacts social justice movements as well sister to sister sister and sisters in action for power describe how their respective framework became a nonprofit. ultimately shifted their focus from organizations to corporate management. When Sisters in Action for Power realized that the detrimental impact the nonprofit industrial complex had on their work, it began to explore how organizations could reject this corporate model and instead develop structures that more closely modeled the vision of society it is trying to build. This step necessitated the development of organizing strategies within an integrated mind, body, and spirit framework that respects organizing processes as much as outcomes. Aware that such frameworks and approaches are often antithetical to foundation requirements that focus on short-term campaign outcomes, Sisters in Action for Power explains why it nonetheless chose to engage in campaigns to develop leadership in young women of color through a holistic framework. Madonna Thunderhawk reminds us that many radical movements for change are able to accomplish much, if not more, outside the nonprofit system. Her essay discusses her involvement with women of all red nations, formed the connection with the American Indian movement, which did not, which did incredible work within a single foundation grant mindful that many contemporary activists feel that they cannot do their work without starting a nonprofit. I'm going to say that again for all you who are listening many contemporary organ activists feel they cannot do their work without starting a nonprofit first Thunderhawk also observes that foundations only give money to more well established NGOs who have the expertise but more often than not, she warns, these purported experts are generally not part of the communities they advocate for and hence do not contribute to building grassroots leadership, particularly in indigenous communities. In this way, the nonprofit contributes to a mode of organizing that is ultimately unsustainable. To radically change society, we must build mass movements that can topple systems of domination, such as capitalism. However, the nonprofit industrial complex encourages us to think of social justice organizing as a career. 
That is, you do the work if you can get paid for it. However, a mass movement requires the involvement of millions of people, most of whom cannot get paid. By trying to do grassroots organizing through the careers model, we are essentially asking a few people to work more than full time to make up for the work that needs to be done by millions. In addition, the nonprofit industrial complex promotes a social movement culture that is non collaborative, narrowly focused, and competitive. To retain the support of benefactors, groups must compete against each other for funding by promoting only their own work, whether or not their organizing strategies are successful. This culture prevents activists from having collaborative dialogues where we can honestly share our failures as well as our successes. In addition, after being forced to frame everything we do as success, we become stuck in having to repeat the same strategies because we insisted to funders they were successful, even if they were not. Consequently, we become inflexible rather than fluid and ever-changing in our strategies, which is what a movement for social transformation really requires. And as we become more concerned with attracting funders within organizing mass-based movements, we start, nit- we start niche marketing the work of organizations. We lose sight of the objective. Framing our organizations as work on a particular issue or a particular strategy, we lose perspective on the larger goals of our work. Thus, niche marketing encourages us to build a fractured movement rather than a mass-based movement for social change. Wow. Project South suggests that a fatal error made by many activists is presuming that one needs money to organize. While fundraising is part of organizing, fundraising is not a precondition for organizing. Fundraising is not a precondition for organizing, family. Project South describes how they integrate fundraising into organizing so that those who fulfill fundraising position in Project South are trained organizers, not fundraisers. Anna Clarissa Rojas, Elisa Bureau, and Paul Kevill trace the impact of the MPIC on the anti-violence movement. Rojas notes that the anti-violence movement became co-opted by the state through federal and state funding. Her work builds on an analysis of Suzanne Parr, who notes that the move toward developing anti-violence organizations through nonprofit system coincided with Reaganomics. At the same time that Reagan was slashing government services, the women's movement organized itself into nonprofits to provide the services the government was no longer providing. Consequently, the anti-violence movement essentially became a surrogate for the state. Likewise, Pierre observes an anti-violence movement focused less on grassroots organizing and more on professionalism and social justice delivery as a direct result of increased government and foundation funding. Instead of imagining domestic violence—excuse me—instead of imagining domestic violence survivors who could organize on their own behalf, anti-violence organizations viewed them only as clients in need of services. And that's one of the questions that we have to ask often when we see nonprofits who are focused on a particular population or a particular group of people. Do they have 
members from that particular population on their board members staff those are important questions to remember to ask the impact of the nonprofit industrial complex on the anti-violence movement has been particularly disastrous because most of the government funding it receives has been through the Department of Justice especially with the advent of violence against women act as a result anti-violence organizations have focused primarily on the criminal justice solution to ending violence that reinforce the private industrial complex in fact many anti-violence organizations are now located within police departments women of color who must address both gender violence within their communities and state violence against their community have been particularly impacted by the direction of mainstream anti-violence movements has taken the NGOization of the anti-violence movement is also actively exported to other countries following a model that Gayatri Spevak calls saving brown women from brown women, which tends to pathologize communities in the third world for their backward attitudes towards women. The goal becomes to save the third world women from extreme patriarchy in their community without looking at how patriarchy is connected to white supremacy and colonialism. I want to go back and read that last section and we're going to end here, but I want to read that last part for you. In fact, I'm going to continue just for a moment. My apologies. And I read, Thus, for instance, mainstream feminist groups will support the bombing of Afghanistan to save Afghan women from the Taliban as if U.S. empire actually liberates women. In addition to the essays in the volume, further analysis of the co-optation of the anti-violence movement can be found in Insight's previous book, Color of Violence, the Insight Anthology. But I want to go back just and read that last sentence one more time. Where is it? Okay. The NGOization of the anti-violence movement is also actively exported to other countries following a model by Gaytree Spivak calls saving brown women from brown men, which tend to pathologize communities in third world countries for their backward attitudes towards women. The goal becomes to save the third world women from the extreme patriarchy in their community without looking at how patriarchy is connected to white supremacy and colonialism. Wowzer. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this is just the introduction. Unbelievable. That's some. Ooh, season five is shaking up to be a monster of. Mm. Wow, it's a lot to chew on. A couple of things that I wanted to share. Uh, Robert Arnove's 
Philanthropy and Cultural Imperialism is something, a book that you guys can check out that would be really good that goes hand in hand with this. And also Robert L. Allen's Black Awakening in Capitalist America is phenomenal. One of his, one of the essays in this particular book is from his work. So you will really, really enjoy it. But ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners Podcast. I am your host, Ellen Elgin Bailey. I appreciate you guys for stopping through. As always, we want to thank the good folks over at KeystoneDigital.tv for distributing this wonderful and phenomenal product. As always, like, subscribe, what? Like, subscribe, share comment, download, burn on disk, burn on floppy disk, <laughs> hard drives, whatever you gotta do to get this information in people's hands, man. This is important, vitally important information. And as always, till next time, remember to always study and fight.